Hello, I'm Tristan Abbey, editor-at-large of the Elia Review of Books. This is episode 13 of the Elia Review podcast. Joining us today is Dr. Clifford Ando, the David B. and Clary E. Stern Distinguished Service Professor and the Chair of the Classics Department at the University of Chicago. He is the editor most recently of The Discovery of the Fact, published in August 2020 by the University of Michigan Press. Dr. Ando, welcome to the show. It's very delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, jumping right into the introductory essay of the book, Discovery of the Fact, you write, and I quote, The present project asks whether a complex array of interests and social needs contributed to endow intertwined institutions of public power with lasting authority over fundamental knowledge interests, not simply in respect to relations between persons and the state, but intersubjectively as well. I'd like to use that quote to sort of frame our conversation and maybe unpack it a little bit. There's a lot of big words in there, not least of which is intersubjectively. But first of all, what is a institution of public power? And what were they like back then in the ancient world? And what are they like today, the modern day analogs? In the ancient world, as much or for that matter, even more than in the modern, the ownership of property mattered. And by that, I mean property and land and buildings. You know, the primary engine of the economy was agriculture, and so ownership of land was the primary source of wealth in any ancient society. And communities, shall we say, to use a kind of neutral term, communities helped the functioning of a society or a community to have agreed upon mechanisms to do things like establish boundaries between property, to record who owned a piece of property, and then to something like record transfers, whether by sale or intergenerational transfer at, at death and succession. And you know, the, the, much the same, I'll, I'll then leap to the modern before we speak about law, much the same thing is of course true today, that there are forms of property in which the state has no particular interest. You don't register, valuable though they are, you don't register your cell phone with you know, a county authority you don't register, I don't know, your porcelain dinnerware with a county authority. But your title to a piece of land, if you happen to own a piece of land, you know, in, in my case, Cook County of Illinois keeps track of each parcel and it knows who owns each parcel and it records the sale of each parcel. And if you have a mortgage, Cook County knows that. And likewise, with expensive pieces of property like vehicles, I have to tell the state of Illinois when I buy a car and the state of Illinois keeps track of who as owner is attached to a particular VIN, a particular vehicle identification number. So at that level, you might ask yourself, why? Why does the state care? And I suppose in, there are cases where you know, it's decided it can accrue money from this. So it taxes land and it needs to know who's to pay the taxes. But to come back to the term intersubjectively, in all these cases, it, it also turns out that relations between citizens, shall we say, the ownership of property matters in relations between citizens and the proper recording of this information, thus furthers individual interests as well as state interests in individuals. And what do you mean by the term fundamental knowledge interest? Is car ownership an example of that or is that a deeper question? Yeah, so what I meant there is that there are constituent elements of a society, both as it were 
a public body or a public interest as well as private interest that have deep and lasting desire for certainty in some matters. And that one of the functions of an office of records, I could name another analog would be Cook County registers births, which has all sorts of knock-on effects, right? If, if a Cook County registers someone as birth, now the Cook County is not a branch of the federal government, but it so happens that in the US, if a, if a county of the United States records you or anyone as having been born in the United States, it has the knock-on effect of, of making that person a U.S. citizen, despite the fact that, the, you know, at some level you might say that that should be the job of the federal government to otherwise adjudicate citizenship claims. So there are areas in which people, societies generate actions that could be recorded as thought of as generating facts, as bits of knowledge or information about persons, transactions, and so forth. And some of these, you know, we could argue about liminal cases, but some are important and some are less important. As I say, births, actual membership in society, citizenship, ownership of land, there are some of these that are simply fundamental to the functioning of legally constituted societies of, of our variety and of the ancient Greek and Roman ones. Is it fair to say that we take the existence of the fact for granted, the way that we take oxygen for granted? We just breathe it in without really thinking about it. Yes. I think it's easy for us to take for granted at least two different kinds of things in this story. One is that in certain kinds of questions, certainty is possible, and that there are a kind of a wide array of issues where we believe somebody out there in the world has the information if we do not. And if you look in the ancient world, an enormous amount of anxiety was expressed, let's say in the earliest Greek poetry, about whether certain kinds of things were knowable. And then as a further matter, whether we could trust the people or authorities or institutions that claim to be able to tell us these things. One wanted, when navigating the world, when organizing social life and so forth, one wanted to know as much as possible and to be able to ground your navigation of the world, to organize your life around certainty. And certainty was terribly elusive, much more so than today. And the, the emergence of our agreement that there should be institutions and our agreement that those institutions should have rules that produce data that even when we don't happen to like it, we agree about well, you know, if that's what the Cook County authority says, then that's the answer. Until we, for instance, go to court and ask the court to change the facts. And, you know, one of the functions of courts that we've agreed courts should do is arbitrate what are facts and what are not. Where is certainty to be located? And to issue decisions. And the decisions of courts themselves become social facts because we organize our life subsequent to the decision around the fact that the court generated. Well, the eight essays in this book do explore the role of courts in ancient Rome and ancient Greece, documents, slander, gossip, and various other things related to the ancient legal traditions of those societies. Anybody interested in learning more should simply just read the book, of course. But if you had to summarize in one or two key points that emerged from your work editing this series, what would they be? Many people who listen to the podcast will know things, know I put in 
quotation marks, but, you know, they'll have some familiarity with how American courts operate. And from, you know, representations in popular culture, many of which are actually pretty good. Law and um, Order, The Good Wife, yeah, all that. Sure, yeah. And one of the things that you see in, you know, these representations of the operations of courts in, in American popular culture are arguments about evidence. And as people will know, I think the minute I say it, the big fight, as it were, to use a, to use a non-technical term, the big fight about evidence in American courts often concerns admissibility. So, you know, was the search and seizure of evidence by the police performed according to constitutional norms? And if not, we can exclude it. And if somebody is asked a question and begins to speculate or something, the, the, the judge or an opposing counsel can object and the judge can order certain kinds of information excluded from the deliberations of the jury. And the jury can be commanded in a kind of very difficult way to ignore something that it has in fact heard. But to come back, the big fight is about admissibility that we have rules about what constitutes evidence. And the, the fight in the courtroom, or the first big fight is, will this get in or not? And it's possible to erect a firewall and exclude stuff. And in the ancient world, broadly speaking, there were no rules of admissibility. You could say anything you want. Hence the, the articles, the very fascinating articles about gossip and slander. Really, you could be in a civil case in the ancient world about, you know, apples falling off your tree into your neighbor's yard and your neighbor complains that you're unwilling to pick the stuff up. Or you're complaining your apples fell and you want them because you're from your tree. You want the harvest, but he won't give them. I mean, the kind of thing that happens between neighbors throughout history and in all societies. And in the ancient world, you could show up at that trial and if you wanted, begin to talk about, I don't know, how dirty your neighbor's car is. He's the sort of person you can't trust because he's filthy or his kids run around without sandals, and he doesn't know how to tie his toga. All sorts of things. Broadly speaking, everything was admissible in these courts. And I'll come back to the, the fact in a second. Everything was admissible in these courts. And the argument among the lawyers, or mark the argument between plaintiff and defendant or litigants was about weight, where you had to take the entire sloppy mess that you had presented and your opponent had presented, and you had to persuade the jury among this vast penumbra of stuff that was relevant and irrelevant, what weight to give it? What was salient to the critical legal issue at hand? And one reason why this might be so, and here we come back to, in essence, the problem of facts, is that what constitutes facts throughout history has been subject to an enormous number of historical influences. Where courts are concerned, in particular, I, I suppose I would make the very simple, but the obvious claim, but I think a very true and important one, that in the absence of certain kinds of forensic science, you know, determining things like causation has been enormously difficult. If somebody in the ancient world dropped dead unexpectedly, and in the absence of, let us say, forensic medicine, in the absence of any kind of system of autopsy, did he die of a heart attack? Was he poisoned? Was it malicious magic? The answer is that they didn't know. And the indeterminacy in, in areas where we might expect, quote unquote, answers to emerge, in many important areas of social life and in the life of courts in antiquity, certainty was not possible. And this helped to generate the regime of evidence that functioned in ancient courts, because it was much harder for them to establish rules in certain kinds of cases about which facts should be salient. So how would you ever establish rules of admissibility? 
But that, that changed the entire style of argumentation. Unfortunately, we are coming to the end of our interview. However, there are three questions I like to ask every guest. First, who has influenced your work? Who do you read? I might name first a scholar of religion, a man named Jonathan Z. Smith. There is a part of my life in which I write about the history of religion, but I esteem Smith because of the extraordinary kind of clarity of his writing and the kind of wide learning on display. Reading his essays, one really felt you were in the company of an intelligent, exciting, and trustworthy guide who was taking you into areas about which you knew little and kind of revealing stuff in a most magical, intelligent way and would bring unexpected material to bear on, on a question that you, that you thought was of importance so that you entered in with him into a problem. He then began telling you things and you weren't entirely sure what they had to do with it. But by the time the essay wrapped up, really a, a whole new world had been opened up to you. I, I thought his, you know, I still think his writing is amazing. It's influence on my work has been somewhat oblique because I don't write on the same things, but it, it's just truly exciting stuff to read. Second, what's your favorite novel? I have spent some time in recent years rereading fiction of my youth with first an older son and now very young fiction with a, a younger son. So I, my mind runs instantly to things like that. I, I would have to say I'll choose two, in essence, pieces of teenage fiction simply because they're so fresh in my mind. One would be The Call of the Wild and the other is The Lord of the Rings. I suppose they're masculine. I thought, having read a lot of children's fiction with, with children as a grown-up, I'll say that however weird his other fiction is, the, the, the books that Jack London wrote about dogs achieve a really an uncanny effect in their attempt to provide the dogs with a voice without pretending that they're human. They remain dogs, mystified by the humans they encounter, but with their own specific intelligence about the world. And finally, what are you working on now? I'm working on a, a big project to produce a translation and commentary with collaborators around the world of the surviving Roman laws. but. I'll mention a different sort of project. I just published with a different colleague a, a large volume of essays studying the work of earlier historians. It's called The New Late Antiquity, A Gallery of Intellectual Portraits. And it contains essays by modern scholars about scholars in their own field of the past hundred years. And, you know, I think for the most part, what classicists and ancient historians do is they study their material. They study the Greeks and the Romans. But we invited contemporary scholars to turn their skills to a different task, which was to read, analyze, and offer a kind of critical appreciation of the totality of work of, of an earlier, as it were, colleague. So, I mean, I edit a book review journal. You have this podcast about books, and we speak about one specific book. And the task, as I say before these people, was not to read one book by Cliff or Tristan, but to read the entire output of an earlier scholar and offer some sense of what that person was like as a mind or an intellect or a writer. And I think the participants enjoyed it very much. I certainly found the project deeply rewarding. I mean, as much as I love book reviews and edit a book review journal, I, I found reading other people wrestling with the, with, the, with the whole output of an earlier scholar, a really rewarding experience. Dr. Clifford Ando, thank you for joining us today. 
You're quite welcome. This interview was conducted on August 3rd, 2021. I'm Tristan Abbey with the Aaliyah Review of Books. Join us online at www.aleoreview.com. That's www.aleoreview.com.